The Magician's Niece presents Sinisterhood by Helena Marie Chandler. Music by Adrian Romero. Chapter 66 The Dodo. Mrs. Wade was driving Dawn to the airport. Any worry at how nasty Mummy would be during her half-term holiday in Helen's Bay had long since faded behind an intense sense of excitement at the thought of meeting her new little dog. Dawn was beside herself with excitement. She kept telling Mrs. Wade about all her plans for the animal. How she'd wash it, the colour of its collar, how she'd brush its fur a hundred times a day. Dawn announced all these things to the nice lady who took her from the check-in desk to the departure gate and she told all the stewards on the plane as well. Dawn was sitting right at the front of the plane. All the air stewardesses were very nice and gave her a cup of tea and a biscuit. Before the plane took off, a lady in a bright yellow vest came to talk to all the children who were travelling without their mummy and daddy and asked each and every one of them who was meeting them when they landed at the airport. Dawn told this lady that her mummy was collecting her. She told her too all about her new Labrador puppy and she asked all the other unaccompanied children if they had any pets. One little girl had rabbits and another had three dogs. It must have been very difficult, thought Dawn, to look after so many animals all at once. Soon the aeroplane rolled backwards from the big airport in London and then it was running very fast along the wide track into the sky and now it was pulling up into the air at top speed. The engine was roaring and the seats were shaking. Dawn peered through the window. It was fun to look out over all the green fields that were getting smaller and smaller and smaller through the glass. Dawn could see tiny cars and tiny houses and the motorways of England that ran through the countryside like big fat grey worms. The plane soared above the clouds now like a great silver bird and Dawn could just about make out the wide blue sea through all the gaps between them. Ireland, Dawn noticed, had a very spiky coastline. It came and went into the sea with green cliffs and big rocks. It was raining when the big plane came to land at the airport and the plane's feet touched down on the ground with a wet and splashy squeak. All the children had to wait until the bigger people had left the aeroplane they all filed behind another woman in a big bright yellow jacket. She was carrying a file and had a kind of telephone. She wore high heels and a tight bun and Dawn and the other children had to walk very fast to catch up with her. Once they had all collected their bags, the children and the strange fast walking lady went through the doors into the part of the airport where you were supposed to meet your family. All the other children's parents were there but Dawn couldn't see her mummy. Dawn and the strange lady sat down on some plastic chairs. Dawn tried to tell the lady about her new puppy, but she didn't seem to be very interested. Lots of minutes went by and still mummy was nowhere to be seen. The strange lady with the high heels and the tight bun began talking to somebody else on her telephone. Dawn wasn't quite sure what they were saying because they were using some very long and secret words. After it went from four o'clock to five o'clock, the high-heeled lady asked Dawn for her mother's telephone number. I don't know it, said Dawn. I don't speak to my mummy much. I live in England. What's your mother's address then? Dawn thought for a moment. 
I think it's called Helen's Bay. We need something more than that, said the lady. We need a house number and a street name. But I do know where my daddy lives, she said. He lives at a place called Hollywood Homes. Dawn could remember the name of the place because it was daddy's place and it was very important. And also because the beginning of the words almost seemed to rhyme. All right, said the lady. We'll send you in a taxi and then your father can pay for it at the other end. Dawn was pleased that Daddy would be paying because she only had one pound in her purse and she thought that the trip would probably cost two pounds or three or four. The strange tight-bund lady began talking again on her telephone. She kept saying the word over, over and over and over. Dawn was so mesmerised by all the different secret words she was speaking that she didn't stand up when the strange lady stood up. And so the strange lady clicked her fingers at Dawn and Dawn thought that this was very rude. Come on then, said the lady very fast, like the way the chickens squawked at the farm Dawn sometimes visited. We want to send you in this taxi as quickly as possible because your mother will be wondering where you are. All right, said Dawn breathlessly, still trying to keep up with the lady. Dawn and all her bags were soon piled into the black car. She was waved off and sent on her way. The taxi driver was playing his music very loudly, and Dawn didn't like it. He kept looking at Dawn in his driver's mirror, with a smile that was the kind of smile that Dawn saw on strangers' faces when they looked at her. It was the kind of look that people gave you when you weren't very well. Dawn didn't like it when people looked at her like that. Still, Dawn was very, very excited that she was going to get to see her daddy. She wasn't expecting being able to see her daddy at all. She was never allowed to see her daddy, and it was very, very unfair. Dawn loved her daddy, but he couldn't phone her. Mummy said it wasn't allowed, and so Dawn could barely remember the sound of her own daddy's voice. She was very excited, therefore, when the car pulled up outside the Hollywood homes. Dawn ran out of the car and knocked on the door. The driver parked his vehicle, and he came to wait with Dawn by the front door, because he needed to collect his money. As soon as the lady in a blue uniform came to the door, Dawn said, Please, 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 can I see my daddy? His name is Geoffrey, and he's got brown hair and blue eyes, and I haven't seen him for ages and ages. Mr Burton Swift, do you mean? Just be a good girl and wait over there for a minute whilst I give this gentleman his money. Dawn sat down on the chair at reception. She was swinging her legs rocking backwards and forwards with all her uncontained excitement. The woman didn't come back straight away because she was making a phone call, a phone call to Mummy. She was telling Mummy to come and collect Dawn as soon as she possibly could. Dawn could just about hear her mother's voice. It was fuzzy and tinny and quiet as it came through the receiver. Please, Jessica, Dawn isn't to see Geoffrey. It'll be much too distressing for the both of them. I'm just out getting my hair done at the moment. I'll be there in 30 minutes. But Dawn wasn't going to sit at reception for a whole half an hour. So when this lady, this lady called Jessica, went to get a glass of water, Dawn slipped from her seat and through the big brown door. Dawn could see lots of people. They all had grey hair and most of them were sitting down in chairs that had wheels on. Dawn thought that her daddy must have the record for being the youngest person in the home because he didn't even have grey hair yet. Dawn walked down the long, dark corridor 
with all the different names on the doors. And then she saw her daddy's door because it had Mr. Burton Swift on it, and Dawn's name was also Burton Swift. Dawn knocked on the door. She could hear the television on inside, so she knew somebody was in there. But she couldn't hear anybody say, come in. So Dawn knocked again. It's me, Dawny, she said. Dawn soon heard a strange sound coming from inside the bedroom. It sounded like a sort of groan. Dawn opened the door in case Daddy was having any trouble. She saw her daddy sitting there. He was sort of smiling at her, and his eyes were big and bright. Hello, Daddy, it's me. Are you all right? But Daddy didn't reply. He only sort of nodded. Can't you speak? Daddy just kept smiling, and Dawn sat down on the bed, and she put her arm around his shoulder. It was very strange because Dawn didn't intend to think it, but the first thought that entered her head was, all that salt and deadly nightshade. Dawn thought that she'd forgotten what she'd read in the library all those weeks ago. She thought she'd decided to take Etta's advice and to stop thinking of her mother, who did very bad things. After all, she'd learnt from reading all of Auntie Kira's secrets book that everybody did bad things sometimes. But Dawn couldn't help herself from saying it. And then she opened her mouth and she said these words to her daddy. Did mummy put you here? Daddy gave a little nod of the head. But then Dawn thought, no, my question wasn't clear enough. And so she thought of new kinds of words to use to say what she really wanted to say. Daddy, did mummy make you ill and then put you in here? Dawn looked at daddy's head, but it didn't nod. It did look, though, as if daddy's eyes were wider, and Dawn thought for a moment that it looked as though he was crying. Dawn was just about to tell her daddy not to worry, and that she was home now, and that she could stay with him here. But then the lady called Jessica in the blue uniform opened the door and said, There you are, young lady. You should have stayed in reception. You're not allowed to be in here. But he's my daddy, Dawn said, taking his hand much more tightly, and I need to look after him. Jessica took Dawn by the hand. Now, now, dear, she said, your mummy will be here any minute now, and we don't want to have any dramas. Dawn was still holding Daddy's hand tightly, but Jessica was guiding her through the door. Daddy's fingers slipped from Dawn's, and he gave out a little cry. He sounded like a bird. Dawn was very sad. She felt very sorry for her daddy. She was in a home, but at least she had friends, and at least she had lots of things to do, and at least she could talk and look at all the birds in the garden. As Dawn was led down the dark corridor and back towards reception, she was beginning to wonder if her nasty mummy had really brought a dog. Maybe she was just pretending, just like she was pretending to be Auntie Kira. Maybe she was pretending, just like she was pretending she didn't make Dawn's daddy ill. Maybe she was pretending, just like she was pretending she didn't put Dawn's Auntie Kira into the bottom of the big, dark, stormy sea. Chapter 67 The Vulture 
Victoria hopped into her newly valeted, glistening red MG, and she sped from one end of Hollywood High Street to the other. So what if she could only afford the vehicle because of Jeffrey's mobility allowance? The inspectors never had to find out that he hadn't once sat in the car. Victoria was very pleased with her new hairdresser. She'd been on a six-month waiting list, and she'd learnt this morning that the wait was well and truly worth it. Victoria admired the bounce and volume that this, her most recent blow-dry, had created in the rearview mirror as she drove. Victoria wasn't embarrassed that she'd failed to meet Dawn at the airport. So what if she got the day wrong? She didn't have a secretary. She wasn't one of those so-called working girls for whom time and date were apparently of the utmost importance. Victoria simply took the zen-like approach of concentrating on each day as it came. She couldn't deny that she felt a cool shudder as she approached the drive of Hollywood homes. All that old age, she thought, that decrepitude. All those saggy-skinned ancients sitting at the last station on the line, one step from shuffling off this, their mortal coil. Yuck, she thought as she reversed her vehicle into one of the many free parking spaces at the home. It seemed not many people visited this place. Victoria had always lived with the impression that death would only happen to other people, not to her. She was the centre of her own universe. How could she imagine the world still existing once her own eyes had finally closed? It was in the sustaining of this mortal illusion that Victoria had avoided the home. She preferred not to be reminded of her potential demise, however far off it still remained. It was very convenient, thought Victoria, that the only address that her silly twit of a daughter could remember was the one where Geoffrey happened to live. She only hoped that Dawn hadn't had a little heart-to-heart with her sickly pa. Not that that was very likely given Geoffrey's aphasia. Ha ha ha. Victoria pulled up the handbrake. She looked about at the two or three other cars parked on the forecourt and gave an inwardly turned smile that hers was at least three times the value of the next most expensive vehicle. She applied a spot of lipstick for no other reason than feeling impressed with herself. Victoria slid out of the car hung her new handbag over her shoulder and set off towards the home's front door. She saw Dawn, she thought, through the glass she pressed the buzzer and it looked as though the girl had been crying. Ugh, what an inconvenience, thought Victoria. I'm going to have to pretend to comfort the girl. She's no doubt upset at what she saw of her daddy. And then she smiled a sickly smile and said, Thank you ever so much to the receptionist. Another sudden shock of a thought marched forthright into her mind. Shit, that little shit of a dog. I haven't checked on it in days. I'll have to get it out of the shed before Dawn realises I've locked it away. Victoria was most upset that she hadn't had the time to do the proper planning. Come on, little one, she said to Dawn, holding out her hand. But the brute just sat there and folded her arms and refused to look her mother in the eye. Dawn, she said, we need to get you home and then you can see your puppy. She turned to the receptionist for motherly effect. I've bought Dawn a puppy for her birthday. Aren't you excited about getting home and seeing your new little dog? Asked the receptionist. Victoria was grateful for this good Samaritan's input though she was sure the girl in blue was only helping in order to get her inconvenient daughter out of the place as soon as she possibly could. What type of dog is it? What's its name? 
At this, Victoria saw Dawn's back straighten, her eyes widen. She began to witter on about Labradors being smiley dogs. The worst of it, however, came when Dawn said, The dog's called Auntie Kira. Victoria had to steady herself against the receptionist's desk. She tried to control her facial expression, but she didn't seem to manage it. A ripple of mad and thunderous rage ripped from her stomach to the tip of her tongue. She had to close her eyes. There was a ringing in her ears. She licked her lips and gave an exhale. Dawn, it's time to go. With a little encouragement from the girl in blue, Dawn arose tentatively to her feet. Victoria gave her best smile to the lady at reception. She headed through the sliding door, and Dawn walked slowly and sullenly, at least three paces behind her. Victoria didn't want to make a scene until they were well and truly out of the car park, but Dawn was dawdling, and so Victoria had to bark, Get in the car, Dawn. She did the barking, however, under her breath, so that no one would hear her through an open window. Dawn slid into the passenger seat. She seemed to Victoria to be confused, but Victoria was in no mind to be sympathetic or explain herself. It wasn't until they reached the traffic lights at Cultraw that Victoria turned to Dawn and said, You can't call a dog after a person. My guinea pig is called Mrs Tiggywinkle, and no one's ever told me off for that. Mrs Tiggywinkle is a character of fantasy, the product of some silly author's imagination. She's not a real person. The headmistress at school has got a dog called Elizabeth. She says it's named after the Queen. Victoria couldn't believe how argumentative and sure of herself that school had allowed her daughter to become. She took a deep breath and decided to try a different tack with her newly belligerent child. All right, the reason I'm making an issue of it, Dawn, is because I find that choice of name very hurtful. I would be grateful if you chose another. Auntie Kira was never very nice to me. She harmed me in very many ways. I'm afraid that name would bring back bad, bad memories. Fine, was Dawn's only curt and quiet reply. Victoria was surprised that Dawn conceded, and so easily. She was sure the little girl was going to reply with some sing-song phrase like, Well, all of my memories of Auntie Kira were lovely. When they arrived home, Victoria ordered Dawn to deal with the bags and the opening of the front door, because she had to go and retrieve that little dog from its cold and lonely quarters. To her relief, Victoria found that the beast was still alive, though it was yapping and it seemed really quite angry. Victoria took the lead from the wall of the shed and tried to clip the metal fastener onto the loop of the dog's collar. Mummy! came Dawn's cry from the far-off drive in front of the house. I've dropped the shopping! Victoria gave a moan at the inconvenience. She dropped the dog back on the floor and went to tidy up the mess, not realising that she failed to firmly close the shed door. Victoria found Dawn crying. She was quite literally shedding tears over spilt milk. It was obvious to Victoria, however, that Dawn wasn't tearful about the shopping. She was rather, apparently, emotionally overwhelmed. Dawn was sobbing loudly, so loudly that Victoria feared the Featherstons might intrude. And then it was the dog's turn to suddenly join this rowdy scene. It was yapping and angry and ripping the packaging of the sausage rolls on the floor. 
Tell the dog to calm down, snapped Victoria. I don't know how to talk to dogs, Dawn whimpered in reply. Hello? Can I help? It was Daphne Featherstone, and she was poking her small head above the parapet of the hedge that separated their respective front gardens. You want to get that dog on a lead before it runs away. Yes, Daphne, thank you, said Victoria, closing the gate. It looks to be very hungry to me. Has it been fed today? Haven't you been taking care of Auntie Kira? Dawn asked, wiping her tears. My God, Victoria, that's a bit of a morbid name. Do you condone this? No, I definitely do not, said Victoria, marching off to find the lead, leaving Dawn in the precarious position of unchecked inquiries from this, the nosiest of neighbours. When Victoria returned, she heard Dawn telling Daphne that she didn't think Kira had killed herself because she was always smiling, and that's why she wanted a Labrador for her birthday, and that's why she wanted to call it Auntie Kira because they were the smiliest kinds of dogs. Daphne gave a subtle cringe of a look to Victoria and mouthed at her, Is your daughter all right? By this stage, Victoria was on mere damage limitation. She gave a fixed smile back in return. She handed Dawn the lead for her dog and ushered them both into the house. Victoria ordered Dawn to get immediately familiarised with her silly dog, and it was probably best that she did it in the open space of the back garden. It was nearly six o'clock, and Victoria set about cooking dinner. The brief thought did whistle through her mind that this should be a herbal affair, and that Dawn should sleep in the garden room alongside her lovely Auntie Kira. Chapter 68 The Dodo Dawn thought her mummy was acting very strangely, but she supposed that she wasn't acting any more strangely than she usually did. Dawn didn't want to tell her mummy that she was acting strangely. She didn't like to make the monster angry, and she thought it was always best to take her best friend's advice. Just leave your mummy alone, Etta would always say. In any case, it wasn't just Dawn's mummy who was acting strangely. The little dog was acting very strangely too. Although Dawn loved dogs, or at least she'd thought she loved dogs until she met this feisty little one, she wasn't an expert in their behaviour or how it was best to handle them. This dog seemed like an angry dog. Dawn wondered if he was angry because he was a new little dog and he needed to be disciplined or if he was angry because Mummy had been angry and she'd made him very angry since she'd brought him into the house. Dawn thought the best course of action with the dog was to make it feel very important and to give it lots of attention. That's what seemed to make Mummy less angry too. Dawn began to pat the dog and stroke the dog and to say nice things to the dog. She wanted to make it feel welcome, so she decided to take it on a tour of the house. It had been many years since Dawn had been at home. Two or three in total it must have been, she thought. She wanted a tour of the house to remind herself, just as much as she wanted to give the little dog a tour of the house. 
She wanted to see if the carpets were the same, if the same pictures were hung on the wall, if the wallpaper had been changed, if the walls were the same colour as they had always used to be. Dawn walked from room to room, gently tugging the little dog behind her and telling it the story of each place into which they went. The dog got tangled in the long curtains in the dining room and he bit at the chair legs in the hall. Everything looked the same to Dawn, the wallpaper, the paint, the carpets, the pictures. But there was one thing that she noticed wasn't the same. It was in the living room. It was on the mantelpiece. Dawn walked a little closer. It was one of those statues, the statues of the birds. One of the birds still had its beak on, but the other one didn't have a beak on it at all. Dawn liked those statues. Mummy had bought them back from her holidays. It was in Jamaica or somewhere over there. Dawn took the beakless bird from the mantelpiece. It was very, very heavy, much heavier than she could have possibly thought. Dawn had to leave it on the ground. It was a shame, thought Dawn, that the bird had no beak. Poor bird. It must hurt to lose your beak if you are a bird, because then you can't speak and talk to your friends. No one can know what you're trying to tell them. Something can have happened to you, and you can't even cry for help. Dawn dragged her little doggy through the back door and out into the garden. She decided she wanted to go on a tour of the village, because she hadn't been in the village for many years, and she wanted to show the village to the little dog as well. Dawn remembered that she had one pound in her purse. She decided to walk out of the garden, through the gate in the hedge, down past the sea and to Lovely Beth's shop. Dawn thought it was very nice that all the people were smiling at the little dog as they were walking through the village. They were all saying nice things like, Isn't it sweet? and How old is it? and What's its name? Dawn said that it was the first day that she'd got it. She said it was called Doggy because everyone in the village knew Mummy and Dawn didn't want Mummy to get angry that she was telling everyone the dog was really called Auntie Kira. Dawn breathed in the fresh sea air. It was nice to feel it on her face after all this time. In London, it was usually so dirty and noisy. Here, in Northern Ireland, it was all open and lovely and green. The shop was very busy. It was a Friday evening and lots of people needed to buy ingredients for their special Friday meals. Beth always had lots of nice chocolate bars for sale. Dawn saw all the different colours of the wrappers and she couldn't choose which one she wanted, so she went for a green one and a blue one which had coconut in it. At the till, Dawn handed over her money. She hoped it was enough, otherwise she would have to put one back. Beth was the lady at the till. She liked talking lots about everybody's problems. She said something funny to Dawn this time. I'm sorry about your aunt, Dawn, she said, putting Dawn's chocolate bars in a paper bag. I felt very touched by the news because I saw her just a few days before she went missing. She bought flowers, I think, for your mother. And a box of chocolates. My gosh, didn't they look just the same, those two? They never used to, did they? Goes to show you what effect chemotherapy has. Dawn didn't give much of a reply to Beth. She just nodded and said, Thank you. And she walked with her doggy out of the shop. Dawn sat down on the bench for a minute because she was beginning to have funny feelings and thoughts. Yes, Auntie Kira and Mummy had looked very similar in the end. 
Hadn't Dawn thought just recently that Mummy was copying Auntie Kira and taking over absolutely everything about Auntie Kira's life? The little doggy was barking now. It was getting restless, thought Dawn. It wanted to be walked. Dawn also wanted to give Doggy a tour of the big back garden. The garden was Dawn's very special place, and she wanted it to be Doggy's very special place too. They set off on their way up the hill from the beach to the back gate of Mummy's house. Dawn could tell that the dog liked the garden. She took it on a walk between the trees and around the flower beds. The little dog was going to the loo on Mummy's flowers. Dawn thought this was a risky business. She turned around to look at the house to see if Mummy was watching. Mummy was in the kitchen with the radio on and she had a frown on her face and she was being very busy and she looked to Dawn to be in a whole wide world of her own. It was only when Dawn turned back that she saw it. The big purple bush of deadly nightshade. Dawn had another look at her mummy. Was she really capable of killing dodos? Did she make daddy's drinks purple? Did she speed up the inheritance like it said in the book? Did she put the flowers into Auntie Kira's tea? Dawn wondered if it was safe to smell the flowers. They were such pretty flowers, with light purple petals and a creamy yellow tip. They had dots of green all in a circle and a black part in the middle that was very dark and evil. Dawn touched the shiny black buds. They were smooth and hard like sweet berries, but Dawn imagined that in reality they weren't very sweet to taste. Dawn's attention, however, was soon caught by something very different. The little doggy was pulling Dawn to the other corner of the garden, and it was in that corner of the garden that Dawn saw something else. It was thin, and it was silver, and she knew it because she had made it. It was Auntie Kira's bracelet, all covered in little doves. Dawn bent down to look at it. It was a little muddy. How did it get there, thought Dawn. She was going to run over to the kitchen window and to knock on it and to ask her mummy, but she didn't want to make mummy angry by talking about Auntie Kira any more. Dawn put the bracelet in her pocket. But now, again, the little doggy was barking. It was barking even louder than Dawn had ever heard it bark before. Shh, said Dawn, tugging on its lead. But the doggy wouldn't be quiet, and it was running around and around in circles by a big lump of metal, like a lid. It looked like the lid hadn't been put in its place properly, because there was a big gap and it was smelling horrible. And Dawn thought that the lid was probably supposed to stop the smells. Dawn began to wonder what was lying there underneath. Thirty-nine.
the vulture. Has Dawn let that disgusting dog shit inside the house? thought Victoria as she stirred the chicken casserole. The stench in the kitchen was becoming quite intense, and it certainly wasn't the sweet smell of paprika, garlic and herbs that was wafting thickly through the air. It was, instead, a sickening odour, the fetter of excrement. And yes, it did seem to be coming from somewhere quite nearby. Had the Featherstone's cesspit overrun into Victoria's flower beds? Had the farmers been spraying their fields with horse manure again? Had enough space been left in her own cesspit? Had Victoria been careless enough to allow hers to overflow? Victoria looked out of the window, and she saw Dawn at the far end of the garden, with a stick held aloft in her hand. The dog was yapping wildly, and at first, Victoria thought, in a move after her own heart, that her daughter was disciplining the brute with the wielding of the branch. But then she saw Dawn bend forward, branch in hand, at the very spot where she was sure the cesspit was to be found. And yes, it seemed she was prodding, stirring about inside that deep well of waste. Victoria couldn't believe what she was witnessing. Had that little girl found evidence where X marked the spot? Victoria opened the back door. She was about to walk towards her daughter, and then she hesitated for a moment, and she thought it would be a safer option if she were to be well-equipped. Victoria looked about the kitchen. A knife or a meat cleaver would have been far too much of a weapon, but a wooden spoon or a ladle surely wouldn't do. Victoria resolved to arm herself instead with the same implement she'd employed in her first execution, the trusty snowy egret. Victoria marched into the living room and found it there on the floor. Had Dawn been fiddling with the murder device? Surely she couldn't have managed to work it all out and in such great detail since she'd walked just an hour through the door. Victoria found herself in an impossible situation because it wouldn't be quite so simple just to murder Dawn. She hadn't had the time to plan the perfect crime. Dr Jones would be all over Victoria if Dawn disappeared like a hideous viral rash. But Victoria hadn't the time to think rationally or prepare. All flustered with her heartbeats and her breath-leaking lungs, Victoria took possession of the statue. She headed out into the manicured garden. She headed out towards her child. Rachel was wearing her new Jaeger ensemble, the one Victoria had picked out for her on their most recent trip to town. She'd been looking forward to this dinner arrangement all morning, all afternoon, and, she had to admit it, all week. Rachel had merely had to remind herself of the luxuriant event that lay ahead that evening every time a pesky client or a demanding superior had troubled her that day at her work. The skyline above Cregantlet was turning silky dark. It had taken on a macabre and lovish hue. Evening was fast approaching, a time, tonight at least, of relaxation, of enjoyment and of being spoilt by her dear and loving friend. Knowing just how much Victoria enjoyed their many evenings together over their many decades of friendship, Rachel was surprised to find no one answering the front door. She knocked several times, rang persistently on the doorbell. 
It was only after a minute or two that Rachel thought Victoria must have been in the garden. Victoria was quite the accomplished herbalist, and she might have been plucking thyme and oregano for their main meal. Cuckoo, it's me, beamed Rachel as she walked around the house and onto the back garden lawn. Rachel could see Victoria standing there in the distance at the bottom of the garden. Victoria was facing away from Rachel and appeared to be carrying something aloft in her hand. It was only as Rachel stepped deeper into the garden that she became overwhelmed by a horrible stench emanating from somewhere near the furthest hedge. Rachel could just about make out the figure of Little Dawn. It seemed as though she was playing with a stick, lifting it up into the sky in the knotted distance. Cuckoo, said Rachel again, this time louder and with greater conviction. Sorry I'm late, Vic. I know we said seven, but I got waylaid with my ruffian boys. Victoria turned around. She dropped the object that she'd been carrying in her hand. Rachel couldn't see what the object was, but it looked to her to be heavy and it landed with a loud thud, no doubt somewhere just beneath the rosebush. Victoria's face was a picture of distress. It was today, wasn't it? asked Rachel, unsure as to the true unfoldings in this most strange and smelly scene. Victoria didn't reply. Are you sure you're all right, Vic? We did say Friday at seven, Nespa. Rachel could hear that Victoria was breathing deeply. She saw that her friend was now closing her eyes. Victoria slowly opened them again. She opened her mouth and then said, Do you know what, Rachel? I'm terribly sorry, but dinner completely slipped my mind. Dawn came home today. I thought it was Thursday. I was getting my hair done. She went on an unauthorised trip to visit Geoffrey, and there was a big scene at the home. We've got this new little dog and it's been playing up all evening. Dawn's being very difficult. I'm finding it impossible to handle her. If you want, I, I can go, said Rachel. We could do tomorrow night or the day after. In any case, Rachel wasn't sure she wanted to eat dinner in this heavy atmosphere and with the stench of whatever it was lingering in the air. No, no, said Victoria, marching forthrightly back to the house. Onwards and upwards, she went on stiffly. Dinner's nearly done and, you know me, generous portions, there's plenty here for three. Victoria took a candle from the kitchen cupboard. She said it smelled of roses and it would get rid of the unpleasant and lingering stink. Can I ask what this is? asked Rachel, hesitantly. I'd rather not say, Victoria replied, before apparently changing her mind and adding, Dawn's kind. You know, they can be fascinated with quite unpleasant things. She decided to take a look inside the cesspit. Rachel gave a sympathetic wince. Always intent on buttering up her best friend, she nodded warmly and told Victoria that she found it quite wonderful how she managed to cope, given all the tragedies and unpleasant things she'd suffered over the years. Will we call little Dawny for dinner? Rachel supposed that it wasn't the dumb thing to let the child go hungry for doing such naughty things. She supposed it wasn't really the child's fault, like it would have been for a normal one like her own boys. The candle was doing an adequate job of warding off the worst of the smells emanating from the garden. Victoria had provided a wonderful selection of wine and the casserole was quite delicious. But Rachel found that she couldn't relax. She kept smiling sympathetically at the little nuisance of a child. 
but she couldn't help wishing that Victoria didn't send her to bed. What time do you usually go to sleep at school? asked Rachel, by way of her subtlest nudge to Victoria to send her insolent daughter upstairs. Eleven o'clock, said Dawn. Gosh, isn't that very late? Don't you think it's very late, Victoria? I'm eighteen tomorrow. I'm a big grown-up, so I don't have to go to bed early any more. I can choose what I want to do. I'm allowed. Did you know my birthday is on Halloween? That's lovely, replied Rachel, in what she hoped was not too much of a plastic tone. She didn't want to think the tricky thoughts that she was thinking, but she did find it a little bit sinister that this particular child had been born on that particular day. Conversation didn't improve over dessert. Rachel found Victoria quite brooding and distant. By the time coffee was served, Rachel was beginning to feel a little bit guilty at having imposed herself and at not having left when the first opportunity to escape had arisen. Rachel wanted to support her very best friend, but she didn't like the cloudy atmosphere that Dawn had seemed to bring with her into Victoria's usually so relaxing and welcoming abode. At nine o'clock, after the last of the putty four and shortbread biscuits had been devoured, Rachel made her excuses and set off on her way. She pecked Victoria on the cheek at the threshold and told her friend, Look Vic, Michael has booked a week-long trip for me and the boys to Donegal this half-term. We're leaving tomorrow, early afternoon. I won't be around this week. I know it's a shame because I'd love to spend more time with Dawn. But there we are. Ciao! Rachel hopped swiftly from the doorstep. She scarpered into her car as quickly as she possibly could. As Rachel reversed out of Victoria's driveway, she saw her friend standing there under the lamplight by her red front door. She seemed to Rachel to be frozen, motionless, speechless. For the first time in their long and loyal relationship, Victoria didn't wave back at Rachel when she fluttered her hand through the driver's door window and set off on her way. Chapter 71 The Vulture Victoria was simply standing there on the doorstep, beneath the darkness of dusk and the orange glow of the spotlight, cast by the lamp hung above her red front door. She waited until Rachel's car had turned the corner on Kathleen Avenue before turning back into the house and walking slowly towards the kitchen. There, sitting against the warm cocoon of the arger, was Dawn. She was muttering little nonsenses to that silly, ratty dog, stroking its nose, pinching its ears, encouraging it, unsuccessfully, to leap up and sit on her lap. It seemed the two simple animals were getting on very well indeed. Pity, thought Victoria, because it would soon be bedtime for both of them, down at the bottom of the garden. Victoria was finding herself in a kind of mystical haze. All the events of this afternoon and this evening, Dawn and her daddy, the beakless egret, Dawn and her prodding of Kira's resting place, all of it had cast a wizard's spell upon her a bewitching charm over Victoria's usually busy and racing mind. She couldn't think. She could barely speak. She couldn't plan or organise or project. 
She simply knew what she had to do in this very moment, regardless of future consequences of any order or any kind. She had to finish with her daughter. Dawn, said Victoria, it's time for bed. Her voice was still and flat and seemed to be empty of wonder. I'm playing with Doggy, thank you. I'm not very tired. Go to bed, Dawn. Go upstairs. You know I'll hurt you if you don't. I'll hurt you back, said Dawn, defiant. Victoria's face fell at the force of her words. I'll bring you your special Horlicks, said Victoria. You know your special Horlicks, the one your daddy used to make. Dawn stood up, her little dog held between her fingers. She stared at her mother. Victoria was shocked to see that Dawn didn't cower or blink. Put lots of powder in it, please, she said, and lots of milk. And I don't like it when there are any lumps in it. Thank you. Dawn left the kitchen. She walked up the stairs. Victoria waited until she could hear her daughter's shuffling footsteps on the carpet in the bathroom. She walked into the utility room, rummaged through the medicine drawer. Aspirin was too benign. Cough medicine innocuous. Sleeping pills would do the work, thought Victoria. They would work just fine. Victoria took out two sheets of tablets, a rolling pin from the bakery drawer. She could hear Dawn humming. She could hear her muttering to the newly named Doggy through the floorboards overhead. Victoria pressed the tablets one by one from their sheet and onto a chopping board. She laid a tea towel over the tablets and began rolling it back and forth, back and forth. Dawn wouldn't even know that she was dying, thought Victoria. At a minimum, that was very considerate and generous of her. She'd tell the police that her daughter had walked off, that she must have taken her new doggy for a stroll after lights out. Dawn was a very difficult child to control, given her condition. You're right, officer. I should have locked the front door. And yes, officer, I take full responsibility. You see, Dawn was sent away many years ago to a home in England for a better life, for a better education. Over the years and given the distance, I must have come to forget how to best care for a child like Dawn with all her very special needs. Victoria lifted the tea towel. There she saw a sea of pearly dust. Pretty, she thought, soft like snowflakes, surely too pretty to kill her own child. She poured the dust into a saucepan, added several teaspoons of sugar as a sweet veil to the bitter taste. Now, she sieved three tablespoons of Horlicks into the pan. She poured over two glasses of milk and brought the concoction to a rolling boil. Victoria chose the largest mug in her possession for delivery of this special brew. It was decorated with swans, six white, one black. She poured within the well of the mug the thick and frothing liquid. She took the cup and left the kitchen walking with it now to the bedroom where Dawn was to be sleeping, sleeping, dying, tonight upstairs.